Hello. Before this episode begins, this is Heather and Alex from the future. Probably three months after we recorded the episode that you're about to hear. Obviously in those three months, shit hath gone down. And we have sort of vanished in a way that is deeply uncool. And we acknowledge the uncoolness of our vanishing. We have been thinking a lot about how to kind of keep going and sort of had fits and starts of what that would look like. The answer is that we are going to finish. We thought we might spend some time just kind of talking about everything that has gone down in the Harry Potter fandom in the last few months. And, and, and the world in general. Well, we don't need to. I mean, this is a Harry Potter podcast. This isn't a 2020 is burning podcast. 2020 is burning. <laughs> but um, we think it might make more sense just to have those things manifest as we finish out this book. So the short answer is we're back. It's all still happening. We're thinking about it a lot. We've heard from so many of you with really kind sentiments and really lovely, smart thoughts. And I think we just need to sort of press play again, as it were. So, you know, be on the lookout. It has been hard to figure out whether we can engage with these books with any love after everything that happened. And that is a necessary ingredient in this podcast, even when we quibble. We do have to be able to love the texts and the characters and that's been hard, but I think we are figuring out our way back to some love. Yeah, we also just want to thank everybody who reached out to see what was up, whether we are okay. We're fine. We are back in our apartment in New York City and honestly, we were just really tired of everything, so... I think I feel refreshed now. How about you, Heather? Don't no. say. It. Do you feel? I don't feel. No, it. actually, feel no. Refreshed? That's a fucking that's a, lie. That's an I don't absolutely feel psychotic thing to say that you feel. But I do feel able to podcast again. So here we go. Yeah. Sorry, we freaked everyone out and made you think we were like dead. We're not. Yeah. We, were we just, are. We are alive. We although were just fucking lazy. Yeah. And tired, and you know, it's pandemic been bad out everything, there. Everything. Everything's been going on. So, but it's all been going on for all of you as well. Anyway, it's going to be kind of a weird time capsule to listen to this movie mini, but I, uh, we hope you enjoy it. Thanks, amigos. Only it's now starting. So, here we go. See you on the other side. Inside of you, there are two wolves, and both of them are giant snakes. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter movie club for meme lords. So what do we owe the pleasure, Minister? I think we both know the answer to that question, Mr. Potter. You've been oh. spying on us, have you? Creature has been watching. Mary Elizabeth Catamole? A wand was taken from you upon your arrival at the Ministry today, Mrs. Catamole. Is this that wand? Seems strange, mate. Dumbledore sends you off to find all these Horcruxes, but doesn't tell you how to destroy them. Doesn't that bother you? There were once three brothers 
who were traveling along a lonely winding road at twilight. Midnight. Mum always said midnight. So there you are. Those are the Deathly Hallows. I'm sorry, sir. I still don't quite understand. Stupid elf! You could have killed me! Dobby never meant to kill. Dobby only meant to maim or seriously injure. Remus and I don't like we have time for a cozy cut-up later. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And I don't actually get that meme. I don't know if I've seen it. But we're here with somebody who has. Hi, everybody. I'm Kyle Price Livingston. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome back. Yep. Weird times we're recording in. Where are you self-isolating, quarantining, whatever it is that we're calling it in the parlance these days? Kyle, tell us what's up in your life. I am in a basement in beautiful Omaha, Nebraska. And I have been in this basement or the attached house or the surrounding environs in safe outdoorsy situations uh, for, geez, two months now-ish. I feel like there's at least a lot of open space in Nebraska. Well, it's, it is open in that, is, in that it is undeveloped, but it is also fenced off in that it is all privately owned. Uh, America. Yeah, he can't. This is not my Antonia. My Antonia. I don't know how to say that. He can't just kind of wander I across. Believe, I believe it's Antonia. I, I think. think. I read that it was like Anthony, but with a Nia at the end. Okay. So, so Anthonia? Antonia. But okay. it's, no, in terms of the, the accent, it's on the first A. It's a heavy accent on the first A, which oh. is in fact why there is an accent aigu on the first A. In that name. Um, Otherwise, there would be an accent on the I if it was Antonia. This is so boring and unnecessary. (laughs) Kyle's in Omaha. We are still in Phoenix. We are... um, So we watched the first movie of Deathly Hallows, which ends exactly where we are currently in the book. So just as a reminder, the film Deathly Hallows Part 1 finishes just as... Lovo enters the tomb of Albus Dumbledore and steals the Elder Wand and thinks that he is very, very clever. So clearly that's a spoiler, so there will be spoilers. But I think if you're up to speed on the podcast, we're not spoiling anything past this book. Also, the book's almost over, so whatever. And we will curse, obviously, amply. These are cursing times. And you will hear some adult themes, one of which Kyle contributed and taught us a horrifying new term. So y'all can Google it yourselves. This week's adult themes are Voring, Michael Gambone's Riders, Fascist Aesthetics, Car Chases, and Selfish Weddings. And let's linger on Selfish Weddings for a second because between the three of us, two family weddings we were planning to attend have so far been canceled or postponed in the times of Rona which is making us even more aware of the fact that Bill and Fleur are monsters for carrying on with this horrible planned wedding. I mean, Bill's literally like half a monster. Okay, well then she's a monster. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and in the books at least, she is part monster also. Oh yeah. Are Vila's monsters or just... Creatures. Magical creatures. I I sort of feel like those terms are interchangeable. That's true. But are Vila in the monster book of monsters? I wonder. Me too. I don't know. But so we do feel as a group that they should have either postponed or significantly 
shrunk the attendee list at this wedding, correct? Deeply, deeply selfish. They should have absolutely postponed or just done the, with the people, with the 10 people who are living at this house with them, done a little wedding. Just wizard justice of the peace or whoever. Yeah, do they even need one? We don't ever see that. I don't actually know, honestly. At least the wedding's outdoors. Okay, it's not actual coronavirus. <laughs> Having but it, it be outdoors. everyone lots of egress no, to escape it's from worse. death eaters. They're physically visible immediately. They have a big eyesore of an open tent. That first of all, it takes 30 wizards to put up for a totally inconceivable reason. That says like, hey, there's a bunch of sitting ducks here eating cake and getting wasted. So definitely attack right now. The teleporting wizards don't need egress. They just... They are egress. Uh, all right, fair enough. But anyway, Look, the, we- the wedding lands. It lands a little differently these if days. My brother and Kyle's brother have to make a really sad and challenging decision to postpone their weddings. Bill and Fleur could have gotten it the fuck together. Having people teleport from all over the world to where Harry Potter is is so bad. <laughs> yeah, no, dumb. And did y'all, just a quick side thing with the tent, I just wanted to, did y'all notice is it Hagrid helping put up the tent using his umbrella? No, that's like, cute, Oh, no, I missed that. Sweet. That's a cute I, detail. I, and I, like, wonder if he really was doing it, or if it was, like, when you let, like, a toddler pretend they're helping carry something, you know? <laughs> Hagrid, you use that umbrella. <laughs> Way to go, buddy. Way to go. Wait. I completely missed that. Do they not give Hagrid his wand back? Does he just keep his umbrella? I have never understood why Hagrid doesn't get a wand after he's exonerated for the whole Chamber of Secrets like shit. They're just like, ah, well, you know. Uh... Why change it now? <laughs> yeah. There's no reparations in the wizarding yeah, world. The wizarding penal system is pretty fucked up. You're right. So we watched this movie. Let's talk about our kind of general impressions of it as a almost end almost finale of this cycle to start with what did we think it's pretty fun i i I enjoyed it like it wasn't completely joyless like a few of the other more recent harry potter movies there were like some real moments of like even in this like lighthearted, magical fun that i really it's what i really look for in the harry potter universe anyway yeah i had a good time watching it i was excited and alarmed at the appropriate places I found a lot of the performances to be very charming and I didn't feel like it was four and a half hours long, which I often do in movies of the length that this one is. I I mean, I just have real problems with how long movies are right now, period. But that's my grandma rant for another time. It but, needs an intermission. Well, it has an intermission. But it needs called another, the second movie. It needs another intermission. No. Intermissions in general is a thing that should come back. I agree with that. Because you need popcorn breaks. Well, you know, it's like it's like a really long symphony or a really long opera or like a sh- like like Shakespeare, where you've got or a full length ballet, any of this shit really, where you've got pauses and intermissions. So you know, they do like in King Lear when we went and saw it, they did like a pause after Act One that was only like. 10 minutes and then a full intermission and another pause. Alex slept through all of King Lear, so he doesn't remember any of the pauses okay. or the, the intermission. Like two, basically. Yeah, anyway. It was dark, it was comfortable. I don't know. I mean, I was there for the rain scene. That's all you really need. False. Big false, but okay. That's the major King Lear moment. 
Um, well, I'm in agreement with both of you because I thought this was a this movie was well done. Um, <laughs> I'm actually I am terrible at talking about movies. That's why we have Kyle. Yeah, but I think Deathly Hallows Part One is one of the better films in the uh, octology. What we, what do you call an eight film set? Um, I think octology is wow, right. nice. I think it's one of the better films. Uh, I would say it faithfully hits the emotional notes of the first half of Deathly Hallows. It's got a tense dark mood but also some of that jk rowling comedy in there the weasley twins are pretty funny there's this nice moment where george i think is like sneaking past harry and Ginny while they're smooching and uh wait you liked that oh i didn't oh i thought it was funny you didn't like that was such a dick move. Like, be a buddy. But like, it was in character. Like, even if you, like, think it's inappropriate to, like, make out in a common area, which, okay, I get, you know, it's a tense living situation, you don't have to make a whole production out of it. You could just say, ahem. But to, like, interrupt them kissing and, like, do it in such a way that you're, like, posed and staring and everyone feels so uncomfortable that all three of you just stop talking and people just silently walk off and alt in, like, different directions that's just like that's obnoxious but don't you think that's like a a fred slash george like move yeah it feels unbranded. oh yeah i just didn't think it was, oh it totally in character i just didn't like it <laughs> as usual i think i'm just like not as in on the weasley twins and their shenanigans as other people i think we've talked a little bit about them being pretty insufferable if you had to actually be near them in real life um, oh, yeah. I would not want to go to school with the Weasley kids. I don't think I would, except for Ginny, want to know a single one of them. Charlie and Bill seem okay. Sure. It's so random when yeah. Bill just has to introduce himself in <laughs> in the uh, rescue scene. They're like Potter. It's not. Is it a rescue? The Seven Potters. The Seven Potters like extraction scene. Just because there's all these characters that are sort of vital to the plot going forward that they haven't had time to introduce in previous movies because, you know, adaptations. So, yeah, whatever Gleason this is. Which Gleason is the Gleason? Domhnall. Yeah, so Domhnall Gleason is like, hi, I'm Bill Weasley. (laughs) There are a couple of really goofy moments where it's just like exposition, exposition, exposition. Like, because you forget that you've met only about half of the characters in the films that actually exist in the books. One thing that I've actually been really looking forward to in the movie, it's such a small scene, and there are ridiculous elements of it, which we will discuss, but I really appreciate them putting the scene with Hermione and her parents in, because we get almost no like emotional resonance from Hermione's choices ever in the books, and that is actually a very moving, sad, touching little moment where you see her actually have a family that she then leaves and it just reminds you like oh yeah Hermione's also a full entire person but how does this charm work oh my god yeah I mean I I really yeah I love that scene it's one of the examples of like cool magic that doesn't make a ton of sense plot wise that this the series kind of falls into sometimes and like so it it erases her from the family photos at the same time that it erases her parents' memories. But like, how how far does this go? Like, do her neighbors remember that these parents had a kid? She went to a different school ostensibly before going to Hogwarts. Like, does it like erase her school records to like all of her like school friends also <laughs> forget 
ever existed. Like, are her parents going to go to jail for killing a child they don't remember having? <laughs> I mean, even down to the fact that are the parents going to kind of look around one day and be like, why do we have all these blank yeah, frames? We're super off-center like, in all of what? our pictures. Yeah. <laughs> what were we thinking why when we, we put a, these up? Rule of thirds. Why do we have what looks like a 16-year-old girl's bedroom? <laughs> What is this room for? In the book, it makes more sense because she sends them to Australia. So they have like a new house and like new identities. But I guess in this, like, she just like back to the future photo erases herself from. Yeah. Which. Like all the family albums. Is really lovely visually. But yeah, then you think about it and you're like, what? Yeah. Are her neighbors going to be like, hey, how's your daughter? And. They're going to be like, we have no daughter. She just does like the men in black neuralizer to them in the movies. True. I would actually really like a movie where like one of those like BBC, not even a movie, like a BBC miniseries about a detective trying to reconstruct this, the missing like Granger girl. Oh, wow. Yep. It would be a really good (laughs) dark kind of true crime type miniseries yeah or it's almost like memento where like mr granger is like peeling back the fact that like he had this whole other life that's just been like that he has no like access to in his memories and he's like oh my god oh that's even better yeah. <laughs> maybe not Memento. maybe memento is the wrong like analogy but something like that where like the narr- the main character can't like trust their own perceptions of the world the born identity <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the granger identity so talk to us about things that you actually know about movies, Kyle. Please tell us about your thoughts on things like cinematography, because we don't know these things. All right. So I will say that, like, it takes me several times watching a movie to really, like, like, cinematography is tough. To, like, really, like, a lot of times if it's really well done, you don't even notice it, you know, other than, like, a few really, like, nicely constructed shots or scenes. And um, so Harry Potter actually has a history of working with some really like interesting cinematographers um so okay in the in the last movie they they brought in bruno uh del Bonnell, who um he he like works with the coen brothers a lot he did buster scruggs um uh he did oh inside lewin davis and uh oh and amelie he's probably like most famous for amelie which is just beautiful all yeah. the time and uh, so he, they brought him in for the last movie, and he refused to come back for this movie and said he didn't want to repeat himself. So they replaced him with another, with uh, Eduardo Serra, who is also a really, like, well-known and established cinematographer who did, um, like, Girl with the Pearl Earring and uh, Unbreakable and, like, other, some, like, pretty good-looking stuff also. Uh, and they, like, previously worked with uh, Slavomir Idziak, who did Black Hawk Down, or Proof of Life, and Gattaca, whatever. Any, anyway, so they, they've worked with a lot of really interesting cinematographers. But um, Eduardo Serra, who they, who they brought in, I think did, some, did a really good job of... Uh, well, so, like, I've been looking forward to seeing the Malfoy Manor forever. I really want... Every time you get to see, like, the inside of a structure in the Harry Potter universe, I feel like, you get some really cool, rich detail... It's, like, full of life and, like, magical and lovely. The burrow, you know, is is incredible. Hogwarts itself. But the Malfoy Manor, you, like, you get in there and you see nothing. Everything is dark. There's no life. There's nothing. The only magic that is happening. And I, I think a lot of this comes down to the way it is shot. And the cinematographer, the director of photography's decisions, the whole background is basically black. You All you see is Voldemort using magic at the center of the universe, which is exactly the way Voldemort pictures the magical universe working. Mm. 
there is no background. It's it is just or everything is background. But the important thing is this point of light in the middle manipulating everything. And those scenes are shot that way. And it's it's really well done. So I I, I very much I, I think this is one of the better looking Harry Potter movies as a result. Yeah, I would agree. And I think to your point about getting interiors telling a real story in these movies, which I actually think they do better than they get credit for. And I think the Ministry of Magic is a really wonderful example in this one. And we get it a little bit in book six, but or in movie six, I guess. But here you you really understand a tonal shift in the kind of orientation of the magical world from the set dressing, essentially, of the Ministry of Magic. You do have this really specific kind of like fascist art deco vibe and everything from I mean even when he picks up Rita Skeeter's book I was like that's really good cover art like (laughs) there are incredibly precise design elements I think throughout this one that that land really nicely the decoy detonators are sort of both funny and sinister and that's a nice scene there I just the the scene where they're like setting they're they're kind of making the stacks of the undesirable number one posters which first of all kind of like mirror the serious black imagery in a way mm-hmm, that's really like yeah. satisfying and has this really nice visual resonance um because the, i feel like the serious black poster is actually one of the most iconic pieces of imagery from the harry potter films period yeah, absolutely. and so then giving harry his own version of that just has it does this nice like kind of emotional mirroring with the visuals I also think the sound... So what's interesting, we were talking about this as we were watching because the music falls off a cliff after they lose John Williams. Like, we all know that. The music in the first three films is, like, life-givingly good. Name a more iconic theme. Than Hedwig's? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe some people think it's really basic, but I think that John Williams' music in the first three films is wonderful. And you, you can feel them lose that when when he sort of drops off of the project and then the best music remains the pieces of John Williams that they like right, retain the rights to but what it does like it gives them kind of the opportunity to do things with sounds that aren't just kind of like soaring sweeping film score stuff so the scene where Ron is losing it and the how it's backgrounded with the like low hum of the radio and the like the like sort of ratcheting up of the tension in Ron's like face and how the actor is showing up with the reading of the names on the radio I thought was so nicely done and we talked we had a whole episode about the importance of like radio as a medium in this book and they use that really nicely to like underpin really key scenes in this I also like how in the books, the radio source is kind of a source of comfort for Ron. But in right. the movie, it's like he's gone down a really bad Twitter rabbit hole and he's just feeling really terrible about the world. Like he's read, you know, <laughs> he's like opened the New York Times like top stories like one too many times this week and is just like starting to freak out. Yeah, it is. I mean, we t- we've been talking about this for many episodes at this point because we've been recording. I would almost half of our episodes on... Maybe a third of our episodes on Deathly Hallows have been like post-COVID. So we actually have been talking a fair amount about how much this book like resonates now. But it's like Ron's got information overload. He does. (laughs) He's just got like like the like news snow blindness that we all kind of get eventually. The one aesthetic that I will say really bugs me and I'm actually wondering if you guys think it's a choice or just like bad taste but like 
everybody's outfits are terrible. Like, I hate Fleur's wedding dress. I think everybody looks bad at the wedding. Ginny looks like wan and underdressed and Harry is wearing this horrible velvet thing. Like, (laughs) we're at this wedding and it's supposed to be this, like, it's described as extremely sort of sumptuous aesthetically in the books and they all look really bad. Even Hermione. Well, they're going for like drab, right? They don't want it to be but the whole tone of the films, right? I know, but the grim. outfits are yeah, super ugly. Yeah. Is that, I don't know, is that on purpose or is that just me? I think they all look terrible. I think Luna looks good and everybody else looks bad. Oh, Luna always looks good. What yeah. do you, should we, this is just like back, I don't know, this is out of order a little bit, but can we talk, should we talk about Luna now? Let's talk about Ivana Lynch, unless we have anything else we want to do kind of visually. I, I will say there was there's there's one shot in the beginning when uh, Harry Potter is packing up his stuff to like get ready to to leave, and he like, he like looks down and there's like a a pause where he's staring at these model soldiers on a shelf, you know, and like most of them have fallen over, and like one of them is standing up, and it's so like okay, it's artsy, but it's very heavy handed in that like you know like at the end of The Departed with like the rat crawling on the railing, yeah, you know. <laughs> It's like that to me. It was like that level of like, have, or like in um oh in Superman when Henry Cavill's standing in front of a stained glass picture of Jesus and is like, I have to turn myself in to like save the planet. Like I have to. It's <laughs> 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 like okay, we get it. No, we get it. Good. Good. Yeah, there are um, a couple of kind of heavy-handed visual metaphors here. I would say that's a good example. Well, you see, he's a soldier, and this is a war, and. <laughs> But he's the last one standing. Yeah, so he's thinking about all the other soldiers who aren't standing anymore. Really yeah. makes really makes you think. Really makes you think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's let's talk about Ivana Lynch because she's amazing. So I I watched this movie. This is um probably the fifth or sixth time I've seen this movie. Um, and I, I so I watched it on Amazon Prime this time. And Prime does this thing where it like pops up trivia if you at any point like pause the movie it like pops up little facts. So I actually learned, I would like, I was constantly pausing it to write down outraged notes, but (laughs) I learned something. Um, And so apparently in this movie, Ivana Lynch was given a ton of like design leeway. She like not only like uh, figured out what she was going to wear, but um, what the inside of the love good house was going to look like, which is another piece of really great set dressing in this movie. Their house is wonderful. Um, but she also choreographed the dance that she and her dad are doing at a wedding. Also, I love the idea that like Luna and her dad come to a wedding and like dance together because they're the only ones who know their weird dance steps. <laughs> uh, but she like choreographed a dance move based on um, uh, brushing away rack spurts, which like in the book universe we know is like silly, but in the movie universe we know rack spurts are very real. Yeah. So. Anyway, it's amazing. She, I mean, her the, her origin story as this character is amazing. Didn't she basically write to J.K. Rowling? She wasn't an actress. She was just like, I think I might be Luna Lovegood. Would you mind putting me in your motion picture, basically? And J.K. was like, yeah, chill. I think maybe you also are. So she just more, I think the only other character that this kind of comes close to happening with is maybe Alan Rickman as Snape, where... Yeah she gives Luna Lovegood just like a whole new life. And I think many of the performances, I would say, like match the 
joy that we get from the characters. Um, very few elevate the way Ivana Lynch does. Yeah, where it's like hard to read the books after seeing the films without thinking of their movie counterparts. Which I don't often, but... I can't read McGonagall as anybody other than Maggie Smith. Uh, yeah. yeah, that too. I was McGonagall was actually the other character I had in mind. I will also say that McGonagall, like Maggie Smith and Alan Rickman, are also like formidable, grown up, long careered, storied performers. So the fact that they do that is like outstanding, but that not that surprising. But to have this little girl show up and be like, "You will never read a book the same because I am so good at this one role." Yeah. It's interesting, and I've also, I've actually never seen her in anything else. I think she does some stage work now, but the rest of them have been kind of dedicated to, like, transcending their Harry Potter role. Well, Rupert Grint, who I actually want to get to next, seems like he's pretty chill just having gotten vaguely rich and hanging out and skateboarding now, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, he's made, st- I've seen him in stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's not... But he hasn't done that, like, desperate to escape it's the Harry like Potter. It's kind of like Ron Weasley actually got famous. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I will also say Rupert Grin seems like the happiest among them. Um, probably. I, you know, I can't. Well, yeah, we know probably. Dan Radcliffe had, like, pretty serious demons really quickly being that famous. I think Emma Watson is a little bit of a tryhard, which is actually very... Honestly, they have sort of career trajectories that align pretty well with their characters. Well, it's how weird is it that they managed to maintain this cast for this long it's with this man? Outstanding. I don't think it was the original plan, but they were going to recast the kids. Yeah, I'd have to like. Yeah, I'm I think so. Almost positive that they they had planned to recast the kids, and they got really lucky that all three of them grew into the roles and that all these incredibly famous actors stayed that that's it's crazy to me like i was i was no, so speaking of maggie smith i was really i was feeling her absence in this mm, movie yeah absolutely this is, only, this is the only harry potter movie that she's not in let alone like she's not in it at all no uh it, this this movie is like really good but it is it's missing two big characters maggie smith and hogwarts itself which yeah is not it actually movie is hard to be away from Hogwarts that is that does leave a sort of hole in the film for me which actually one of the things that I when I whenever I get in arguments with people about whether Fantastic Beasts is like remotely useful or relevant as a piece of the canon which like no very much not (laughs) I'm like these are school movies nobody thinks it's just inherently interesting that there's magic (laughs) like that's that's lowest common denominator of what is fun about Harry Potter yeah, Maggie Smith, I, I do. I mean, you know, I miss all of these. But we'll talk about him in a little bit. But even Jason Isaacs. Like, you get all these actors who it kind of takes some doing to get them to stick around for the whole series. But thank God they do. Let's talk about Rupert Grint for a minute. Because I think he is... I think Ron is similar to Snape in that movie Ron is why people tolerate the character Ron Weasley. Mm-hmm. Um because he's really fun in the films, period. And in this one, he's just not nearly as, like, daft. 
Yeah. Like, there's moments where Ron is kind of holding his own intellectually. And the voice of reason. Yeah, he has this moment with Harry earlier in, early in the movies where he uses, like, logic and empathy to convince him to not run off after Voldemort before the trace, like, breaks. And it's, like, where this Ron is nowhere to be found in the books. <laughs> or, yeah, like, he puts together some piece of the Deathly Hallows puzzle. I forget which part, but he, like, has this, like, flash of insight that just never would happen to book ron yeah rupert grint does a ton to like in a way like um humanize ron you know he by the you know a lot of times ron in these books is just like harry too or just like helping to make dumb mistakes to propel the plot but in in this movie he like he is actually granting the premise that this is all dumbledore's cockamamie scheme he's like essential to the plot and for this all to work and and in order for us to enjoy this movie at all we have to like ron i think and rupert grant does a really good job of making him likable um also the amazon trivia so amazon provided me all sorts of trivia about like what a genius ivana lynch is and um and i know this is sounding like an ad for amazon but it's just a weird thing that i never noticed until today so i'm talking about it we actually uh, learned it when we watched the twilight movies on prime and the uh, factoids are way dumber because the movies are just what they are <laughs> yeah um and then like information about like um daniel radcliffe you know publishing poetry at the age of 17 under a pseudonym and uh and then it gets to rupert grint and it's like rupert grint knows how to ride a unicycle <laughs> Which is so Ron. <laughs> Wonderful. Man, he, that is whimsical as hell. He also gives emotional credence to Ron's departure that I think works better in the movie than in the book even. You just think that movie Ron has a little bit more going on upstairs and you can kind of watch his like emotional reality be like rich and interesting in Rupert Grint's performance. Like, the scene where he is telling Harry that basically, like, Harry... And I actually think what they do with the... Again, with the sound here, with the radio and the the names and stuff kind of contributes. But where he's like, you don't know what it's like to lose someone because, like, you've already lost everything or whatever. It's brutal in this movie. Oh, God. It's the... I think it's the meanest thing that anyone says to Harry over the... Draco Malfoy never comes close. No! To, like, wait to how much Ron hurts him right there. It's... And you Incredible. watch it in the performances, and it doesn't actually, I don't think it lands as well in, in the book as Rupert Grint brings it to life. Let's talk about some of the other, just like, there's just a cavalcade of kind of like British character acting that, that's been true for every Harry Potter movie, but it there's so many characters in Deathly Hallows, because we're in, we're sort of living in like four or five different kind of like magical universes at once. That we just get all these like little performances doing so much. Mm-hmm. So Jason Isaacs. Yep, of course. Who, who almost did not come back for this movie because um, he was afraid that he was going to spend the whole thing in jail and he wouldn't have anything to do. So he like complained or spoke to J.K. Rowling, who was apparently like, "Yeah, you get out right away. I mean, chap- chapter one, you're you're not you're not in." Which is funny to me because it means that Jason Isaac has not read the books. And have no, <laughs> and like I would have, I would not have been able to resist the urge to read the books, but it's just a job to Jason. Yeah, like I just don't want to be bored in jail. <laughs> Although apparently now 
now Jason Isaacs is one of the actors that is the most sort of still in group. Like he and the and um Tom Felton remain really close. They like get together and like do shit together. So I think he actually is interesting because he has stayed kind of in the like clique even if he wasn't necessarily that into the like magical world. Um it's cute that he and Tom Felton are like buds and he and <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe too. I like Jason Isaac's interpretation of Lucius as kind of like becoming this like sad wino. Like he's like clutching Draco at this one moment when he's telling him to identify Harry and he's got this like glass of wine that's like sloshing yeah. around. He's like, dude, Draco, you really need to like figure this out, man. He's like unshaven <laughs> and he's gotten his himself very like bleary eyed in a in a fun way. Um, I also love when he has this incredibly like fussy, ugly, over-the-top, like, wand handle that he's appended, and Voldemort just, like, snaps (laughs) it off, and you see him kind of, like, jolt. Bill Nighy, again, is only in two scenes, and he is just extraordinary in both of them. I think he's he's the sort of, like, late-breaking best casting in Harry Potter. He, because Rufus Scrimgeour is, like, he's fine he's a pretty fun character in the books and then Bill Nighy shows up and it's like he's got his his really good prime minister persona but then when he's actually at the house with Harry and Hermione you sort of see him half playing the character that he plays in Love Actually where he's doing that really that big Bill Nighy like blink you know when he's kind of taken aback he's doing he's doing lots of fun work like He's, ah, he's phenomenal. Quivery, tortured, confidence persona is so wonderful. Like, I, I, to have, like, the... I don't know whether it's just, like, innate or he actually has, like, the muscle control to make his lips, you know, quiver or if he's just, like, so into the emotional thing that it's happening naturally. But just, like, physically, he is... Uh, he's a really powerful performer. He is. Um Formidable. Also, he apparently, according to the trivia, has a genetic condition called Depoitin's Contracture, where his little fingers bend inwards towards his thumb, and, like, much more so than us. Like, a much, like... Uh, and so, it, like, it, it that popped up, and I learned it, and then I, like, rewound the movie, the scene where he's, like, giving them all their things to see if I can get a look at his fingers. Like, I just gotta see Bill Nye's fingers! Um... But you never get a good shot of it in the movie. So, sorry. Bummer. Sorry. This sounds like a good YouTube rabbit hole yeah. for later. <laughs> um, I also think, uh, so I'm super glad Imelda Staunton's back. I mean, she doesn't get a ton to do in this movie, but she does get that, like, you know, name the witch that you stole this wand from. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's so nice to have. Ugh. She's such a hated character, but she's she's great. And then uh, Guy Henry stepping in as Pious Thickness. Um, he's he's another, like, pretty well-known British actor. And he, he was in um, V for Vendetta. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and he is apparently, I didn't know this, Grand Moff Tarkin the, uh, in, the, in Rogue One, the guy that they project Peter Cushing's, like, cgi skin onto is, is i can totally see that yeah yeah it's guy it's it's guy henry uh <laughs> what a weird what a weird job <laughs> it's like the agent calls and is like okay i got a gig for you <laughs> you're going to be 
Peter Cushing, <laughs> but like mostly Peter Cushing. Yeah, but you also have to do a Peter, a young Peter Cushing voice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's. The so pious thickness is a really good example. I think um I don't know if you have the name of the actor written down, but Yaxley is another really good example of getting fun, talented British kind of like walk on character actors to do little Death Eater turns does get us away from how annoying the Death Eaters are in the book because you you get actual acting and not just sort of like bungled sort of badly written yeah, J.K. Rowling weird, bad guy dialogue. Like, meatheads yeah. in, so, in the movie. It's actually much like the scene at Malfoy Manor when you actually see the faces and everybody is doing a lot just with having bad guy face. <laughs> um, it's a much more alarming moment. Even, I mean, whatever. It's very alarming in the books because then Charity Burbage gets eaten which like, ooh. But I feel like all of those all of those actors get to just do a fun, like an important fun little turn of, no, but the Death Eaters actually are pretty scary. And a thing I really appreciate in this movie that is less true in other ones is they're not in their masks all the time. So they actually do get some acting. Mm, yeah. Yeah, in, I really enjoy um, the, the the two Death Eaters who like apparently really understand muggle society and show up in like very believable like workman's outfits oh yeah yeah where did they get those it's like you're right the verisimilitude is not it's like very off-brand for the death eaters we know and love it's like you guys are actually look just like legit yeah (laughs) you can't get other wizards to stop wearing like purple nightgowns in public but like these two death eaters are like yeah no i mean we've been maintaining a front at joe's plumbing for a year yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're like deep undercover um ah. obviously we I, I think cannot possibly not if we're going to talk about death eater acting talk about the extent to which helena bonham carter brings bellatrix lestrange to life i think she i would say maybe i would add to the list of people who has become for me pretty inseparable from the character because her just like her like deranged like eye work is doing just hundreds of words worth of um sort of like storytelling for us Um, she's she's off kilter in a way that's so much more satisfying than if somebody had played that like totally straight oh it is it is total scene chewing like acting but it's so great it's so perfect for the character like it is yeah and she's really gorgeous in a really disconcerting way also an extreme talented knife thrower i mean wizards are not known for their hand Mm -hmm. eye coordination that was an incredible fucking throw it was (laughs) she she got it done mundungus fletcher again like a much more well-realized and fun character on screen than on the page, I think. But also, we've never met Fletcher in the movies yet, so when he shows up at the Potter house, he's like, oh yeah, I'm the really sketchy dude that you obviously shouldn't trust. Hello, Mendungus Fletcher, yeah. crook, yeah. bad news bear. You may have heard my name mentioned like three times over the course of the last eight years. Um, yeah, but that's that's Andy Lind. He's, uh, he's, he is another like standby British, British actor. Um, and interestingly enough, um, he the, Mundungus Fletcher is not even the most ridiculous fantasy character name he has ever had. 
Uh, he is he's in a movie called uh, Secret of Moonacre where he plays Marmaduke Scarlet, which is my absolute fucking favorite character name for anybody ever. Marmaduke <laughs> Scarlet is really it's a that's a that's a solid character name. Seriously, I I like that Mundungus is more of a kind of like smooth mobbed up type than the kind of scruffy like I mean I, she portrays almost like a rail riding hobo yeah that's what I would that's what in a I way it's just like very anachronistic <laughs> and he's this Mundungus is much more modern and believable he's he's more of like a Charles Dickens thief like a yeah yeah, yeah. like an artful dodger type yes yes and then which makes the scene where creature kidnaps him really funny um because he does he does a lot with a little bit there and he i mean the the physical acting is great because you know there's nobody touching him you know yeah there's not so there's not a tiny person in a green suit on his back like he like he just sells it it's really i appreciate it anyone else on that list of kind of little Little turns we want to... Oh, Xenophilius. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Reese Ifan. I can't say. I'm terrible with most names, but with Welsh names in particular. But, uh, yeah, he... Um, another, like, well-known star of stage and screen. And also a musician. He's one of those people whose face pops up uh, in, a, in a ton of places. Like, he's in... Um, I was in The Replacements, the, the football movie where the scabs are the heroes, which still really... <laughs> which is garbage. Yeah, I really <laughs> that movie. I'm, like, supposed to like Keanu Reeves, but you're a fucking scab, Keanu Reeves. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> I do find Xenophilius to be really... I think that's a... He doesn't get a lot of room to play the kind of... How do I want to put this? He's very sympathetic and it's just sort of his eyes. Like he has these big pained eyes where you can tell that he's trying to make the worst decision of his life. And it goes over quite well and and you feel for Xenophilius. Which makes it even more alarming when Ron goes so hard against him in the next scene. Calls him a bleeding traitor. I think we can just talk about this for a minute. The house elves creature is so great here. And I actually really wish I miss the fact that we don't get the whole creature side plot, which is one of the best parts of Deathly Hallows part one, I think. Would have been a cool flashback. Um, but... but I mean, obviously there's neither time nor space. But the fact that creature talks the way he does makes it very obvious that we didn't have to have the Dobby voice we got, which is one of my least favorite things in the whole series. I think Dobby is infuriating sounding and it makes me less sad when he dies because i hate whoa i I think some people love movie dobby but his like death speech is like marred by how grating that voice work is (laughs) they're sort of stuck with the choices from christopher columbus and chamber of secrets right? which were bad choices so it's weird because the whole movie, the whole series tonally shifts with Prisoner of Azkaban. Like, Alfonso Cuaron really sets, like, the visual and aural, like, vocabulary for the rest of the series. But Dobby's this weird throwback to Chamber of Secrets, and he hasn't been in any of the movies since then. But 
you literally can't adapt this book without having Dobby in it. So Dobby from Cha- Dobby has to get like plucked out of the early two thousands and like dropped into this critical moment in the movie. So I don't know. It would be weird if they had like a completely different looking Dobby just because the look doesn't bother me. The but look is he has fine. to sound the same. Oh, too. the voice is so bad. <laughs> like it's happened before that characters have been replaced in movies yeah I, I think they could I, absolutely yeah. have improved upon this i think it would have been too jarring for i people. disagree people would have we got over would've... dumbledore yeah we literally yeah, have two <laughs> different dumbledores with really different vibes very different no i think they just they have to because dobby's voice is pure comic relief in the only other movie he's in and he's the most he's the actual full like cowboy hero in this scene and then he's like Harry Potter here I am and it's like I that's sort of Dobby's deal no, though I don't know this Dobby doesn't, doesn't bug me too oh, much he drives me crazy Dobby does not bother it's me that like much it's like nails on a chalkboard for he me he does they do make his death scene more they give him more like emotionally manipulative lines because in the book he just croaks out Harry Potter and this one he's like that I am with my friends. Here I am with my friends. I am an elf who has made friends. Oh, I hate it. It feels like Dobby the elf is doing a house elf bit. Yeah, it does. <laughs> like, it's like it feels like an affect, you know? <laughs> yes, that's exactly and it. He's it's got an like affectation. A one, he's got like a one-liner where he's like, Dobby didn't mean to kill, just maim or injure. It's like, Dobby wouldn't say he that. He would never. Dobby wouldn't say no, that. No, the character, that is a character that's really uh, broken. Dobby's and so, got some Jar Jar vibes. Well, and in, the uh, other, the pro- <laughs> yes. And the thing that that also does is then it forces Dan Radcliffe to drastically overact in that scene to make up for how fucking stupid Dobby sounds. So Dan Radcliffe is doing way too much to convince me that he's sad that this like horrible puppet thing is dying in his lap it's not even a puppet it's like right i don't know what it is it It would be better if it was a puppet practical effects are always better yeah yeah i agree and make the puppet make the baby yoda puppet a puppet that's what you know that's one of the things that works i mean that's why baby yoda is so good right baby yoda is exactly the recommendation for making dobby a practical effect yep where's fenrir grayback who is this <laughs> clockwork orange, like, kind of, yeah. I don't know, he's, like, bescarved and, like, eyelinered and kind of fey, like... He's like Alex, the Snatchers are like Alex and his droogs, totally. They've got that, like, vibe. And then Greyback doesn't even, he gets totally demoted, I guess. Because he is there. Yeah. He we should see have him, been the one to smell the perfume. That would have made a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah. It would have. Um, Hermione... If we've learned anything from 73 days of quarantine, we are done with perfume, friends. We do not need to be applying scents to our bodies. Also- we barely are masking the scents that our bodies make for themselves at this point. Uh, it's also weird that the snatchers don't find them in this because they break the taboo, which I guess that I guess that would have been a lot of like exposition to cram into this but they just sort of accidentally apparate into a crowd of snatchers that are like just like into the center of a yeah, ring of snatchers hanging out in the forest somewhere like how unlucky is that yeah like <laughs> well it it fortunately 
I mean, it, it is the same level of unlucky as they are lucky that Mundungus Fletcher spots a newspaper with Dolores Umbridge's face on it. Just oh, like, I hate that. It's like it's the, wait, there it's her. That's lucky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot about how annoying I found. I'm glad you brought that up. That was really irritating. Another. He just like looks to the side, and it's an old newspaper too. Right. It's from uh, year five. Right. Right. Just, no, no, it's not. It's from. Um... No, no, it's, no! It's the it's the ministry making educational. No, it's a new one. It says that uh, it's not from Year Five. It's it's a new. What's issue. a new newspaper no. doing in that house? That doesn't make sense. It's not an. It's no. It's a Year Five. It's Dolores Umbridge being named the oh, the okay. minister of education or whatever. She's like the the Betsy DeVos like coronation situation. God. I'm sorry, that's an easy comparison, and I don't know why we haven't talked about it before. The, all of the ways in which Dolores Umbridge is Betsy DeVos. <laughs> but that might be a little bit much right now. Uh, yeah. But, no, the newspapers do a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. There's an awful lot of, like, newspapers moving things from plot point to plot point, or just, like, filling us in on, like, what's going on, you know? Um, they do, like, a lot of... Uh, both newspapers and then radio when newspaper becomes inconvenient seems to motivate the plot of this of of this movie like harry like reading a newspaper harry's reading a newspaper in the first scene uh of the movie like um as the like sad music is playing and hermione is obliviating her her family um and then like it just like keeps popping up over the course every time the newspaper gag happened i wrote down newspaper gag in my notes uh, and yep, newspaper bit again at the borough. Um, uh, newspaper bit, yeah. At least I wrote it down at least four times. Yep, more magical newspapers. Here it is again. They just keep it keeps happening, and like it works better in Harry Potter than the like cliched spinning newspaper thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, the in the Wizarding World, the newspapers like kind of literally do spin. Right. Okay, one last note on the Snatchers. I think I actually may have made a joke about this earlier on the podcast without remembering, but they literally use a catchphrase. The guy says, snatch him! <laughs> <laughs> Just to like, you know. Snatchers, no snatching. <laughs> <laughs> snatch him! That's what we do. Let's talk for just a minute about the most kind of like divergent visual decision that gets made here, which is the animation of the story of the three brothers. Um, what do we think? I think it looks good, but I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, you needed something visual there. Otherwise, it would just be listening to Emma Watson like read a book to us, which I don't know. So I liked it. I do think death sort of looks like General Grievous, but... Not sort of, entirely. Yeah. Just the way he kind of, like, stoops and has, like, the weird long, like, neck and, like, visible, like, vertebra on his back. I don't know. He's yeah, kind of like... That is, that's, that's the grievous thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I, I, I really enjoy it when movies do things like that, when they add, you know, like in um, Kill Bill, where they, like, introduce the, the, the Oren Ishii uh, anime segment. Like, I just, I enjoy it when movies go animated for to to tell uh childlike stories i agree with that and i think the way i think the the kind of 
choice of the type of animation here was really nice because it's not goofy um so it doesn't kind of take you out of the thematic importance and the other thing it does that's really cool is that it mirrors the simplicity of the hallows Mm, symbol because you do have this kind of like line drawing approach to telling the full story so then it kind of coalesces into the the importance of just the very simple symbol yeah, it's one of the most unique moments. It is. And it's it's a choice I'm really glad they they made. It's also something that you would sort of watch as a standalone. Like it's it's well done enough that I think you could kind of pull it out of Harry Potter and have it be a pretty nice piece of just like animation. Yeah. So there are as always a few what the fuck am I watching moments here so does anybody want to talk about their particular moment of okay i am just really trying to keep up with y'all here yeah well sure so okay so there's 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 a few times where i'm just like some something that has been introduced to this movie that like looks cool is baffling to me and makes no sense in the books as i recall when the ministry falls during the wedding um kingsley's patronus shows up and is like the ministry has fallen, um, you know, and, I, and, and you know, get out while you, they're they're coming. In in the movie, it's been replaced with inexplicably yelling ball of blue light. Yeah, what <laughs> is that thing? So like many, holograms of yeah, the battle inside yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. How many like stupid, con- like convoluted ways of communicating do wizards need? Like, do, do we need another shouting method of communication? <laughs> Should have just sent a howler. Yeah, just to, had it designed to, like, open immediately. You know, that would be just as effective. I was excited to see Kingsley's Patronus. I don't remember, what is it in the book? It's a lynx. Oh, that's rad. Yeah, that's it's cool. Patronus. And it's like, we know, we get a Patronus later on. So it's not like they can't do a Patronus because they're, because... Umbridge's scary cat Patronus is there and very effective. And we have the doe Patronus, which is also pretty beautifully done and very effective. So it's like, why we didn't just do a talking lynx and instead you did this chaos ball. I, yeah. (laughs) I also don't totally understand why Patronuses can carry messages. What, what is the connection between my happiest memory and like telling and delivering a message thousands of miles away? Like why, why are these two things connected? I think that she forgot what Patronuses are and then just did another thing with them, which is a pretty on point JK Rowling move where she was like, oh, I think I made up this thing where these animals like are you. So like, what if that just, they also give messages. It's just, it's Patronus, it's Patronus feature creep. It is feature creep. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, I, have one, I have one more that really confused me. Um, so in the diner, they have knocked out the Death Eaters. And Ron's like, it kill- you'd kill us if the shoe were on the other foot. I should just kill you. And Harry's like, no, Ron. If you kill them, they'll know we've been here. What? Who? Who will know? They know. They yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty well they aware, friend. Are. <laughs> <laughs> and who cares if they know you've been there? It, it, go somewhere else. Also, what happens when they erase their memories? Do, like, photographs of them, like, disappear, too? At home. Or... Yeah, what happens? How, how does the Obliviate spell work in this case? It's not that you're not erasing. You're only erasing their memory of this encounter. So they're just going to wake up and be like, why are we in this, like, 
disheveled why are we in this like kind of blasted out diner it's not you're not erasing their whole memory i feel like they could put the fucking pieces together pretty quick it's like what were we doing before this we were looking for harry potter we went to a diner and then just randomly ex- that randomly like exploded. True. Maybe she does erase that whole memory. Well, aren't we meant to understand that Hermione is really good at like very precise obliviating? So maybe she maybe the whole the reason it takes so long is she's like finding the kind of like memory strand mm. and following it to its root. So she's like, I'm gonna erase like she's very precisely and surgically erasing the whole part of their memory that like has them on this particular quest but like leaves everything else intact because I think that would be what would be hard about the charm is to like be really surgical about the memory you're taking out but they still wake up in the diner right yeah so that yeah fair point (laughs) I think the Bethilda thing like oh god I don't know. It's complicated because, first of all, I think that she does a bang-up job of silent, scary old lady. And then when she whispers in parcel tongue, it's horrifying. And there are some really fun kind of horror movie moments with this scene. Like where she's like far away and then all of a sudden she's really, really close. Like, you know, that's like kind of a tried and true little horror hack. Uh, how much would this fuck you up if you had never read the books? All of a sudden, she's snake corpse. But what? I remember. Yeah, I was like, well, I was like clutching the chair I was sitting in because I knew she was about to be snake corpse. But that is one of those Harry Potter moments where if you hadn't read the books, you would be like, I, you lost me. (laughs) I don't understand who this snake is or why it's in this woman. There's that one shot where she's like crouching, like kind of like hunched over in the shot with with Harry, and you and you see the amulet as well, where it's like, oh my god, three Horcruxes within 36 inches of each other. Yeah. perfect. And then they spend the next five hours of movie time looking for essentially those Horcruxes. Yep. (laughs) That is exactly it. And nothing gets blown up. The thing that fucked me up was the Ministry Toilets, which, that's funny. It's like this hilariously, like, mundane way to get into the Ministry earlier in the series. But in this one, they're like, there's these orderly lines of, like, ministry employees that step almost like in total synchronization into the urinals at the same not the urinals into the stalls at the same time and it's just like this is not inconspicuous at all like everybody would be like there's something fucking weird with that public toilet over there where like large groups of men gather and step like Right. And never come out. To do, like, synchronized pissing or whatever. Yeah, this is what's always bugged me about the ministry. Okay, so you put it in central London for some reason, right? Everyone teleports into it. Yeah, you don't need to be on, like, a good train line. Right. It is funny. She's like, it's like she's like, oh, it's easily commutable. And it's like, what are you talking about? Teleport. And if you're going to teleport, why would you put the... First of all, why would you put the teleporter in a toilet? But second of all, to have it like sitting directly above the ministry. It's not necessary. No, it's like (laughs) it is all it should be in the middle of nowhere. Like the ministry should be. Or at least the teleporting toilet should be in the middle of nowhere. Then you're a lot less conspicuous. Exactly. No, to be like, we're going to we're going to take the most populous area of the country and make a really weird thing happen there 
Because, yeah, don't other muggles use this toilet? And, or that's they walk in like and they're hidden. like, there's they're some like, kind wow. of toilet cult. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is some kind of freaky, like, perverted religion of toilets. Every once in a while, one of the charms fails and people start, like, flushing the toilet directly into the ministry and, like, outhouse <laughs> like, have to clean yeah. it up. Maybe that's why Yaxley's office is raining. It's actually oh, just... Oh. That's yeah. the fucking toilets. Fairly good. Yeah, it's just toilets. Uh, the other part that fucks me up, and I think fucked all us, all of us up. The most unseeable part of these movies is the like weird Horcrux softcore porn. Oh scene. my god, that yeah. is the grossest image in these movies, including Snake Corpse. <laughs> Why is it gross? It's just the. It's gross. It's like it's it's porny but it's also like scary and there's that weird like evil cloud <laughs> like cthulhu thing in the background i forgot how naked they were implied they're to like be boning. like i thought they were just sort of like they're topless, like they're but... like fucking yeah whoa yeah. it's i still find it hilarious that voldemort has composed like erotic Harry Potter fan fiction, which he then, which he then shows. To he just Ron. like astral yeah. projects to Ron. That's what that specific segment of his soul does. That that yeah. that like one seventh of his soul is devoted to writing <laughs> Harry and Hermione slash fic. Yuck. Yeah, it's weird. I honestly don't like any of the like. Like, I also find that scene where Harry and Hermione are dancing to the um, Nick Cave song, which is, like, a really funny bit, right? Because that, that song came out that summer. You know, that's, like, a period appropriate. And it also means they're, like, listening to Muggle Radio. Muggle Radio. Radio, which bugs me, but whatever. Uh, that's that's the least of my concerns. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, don't, I don't like the scene where they're dancing together. I, like, I feel like if I'm Hermione and, like, my, like boyfriend has stormed off feeling jealous of like this relationship that i don't have with his like best friend our like third best friend and he like put on the radio and then like walked over to me and like put his hands around my shoulders and like gently took off my necklace and then like held out a hand and like pulled me up to dance i would feel super creeped out i'd be like oh man Maybe Ron was actually onto something. Harry, what are you doing? Leave me. This is not a time. Is how I feel. Maybe the Horcrux has made her more susceptible to Harry's advances because Voldemort really wants Harry and Hermione to smash. Ooh, maybe. <laughs> Kyle, your take just now convinced me that it is weird. I find that scene actually really charming, mostly because I like the idea that. Harry and Hermione are just trying to keep each other company however they can and like make a little moment where they're not thinking about and then Hermione does exactly what you'd expect where she's sort of like the song ends and she's like okay yeah I'm sad again everything is horrible but my interpretation is closer to Harry just being like let's like find like a little you know like literally let's like move our bodies and like take off this like soul sucking thing and just like be kind of out of it for a minute but you're right that it is it's creepy the, this the fact time, that they're dancing together it's it makes it more like sexy creepy this time when i watched it i kind of read it as the two of them sort of like exploring like is there something to this because they both isn't. and then at the end of the dance they realize they don't have those kind of feelings for yeah. each other but okay. they actually do 
their acting is pretty kind of like precise here because they do manage to convey that they are not sexually attracted to each other at all but that they yeah yeah, but that they care each other for each other a lot i do actually think their dynamic here is very like sweet and kind of carefully played but you're right it's like a pretty it's mostly just they never it's nice to have sort of a visual like a quiet moment in this movie where they're just like existing together and it isn't stressful but in context it's pretty weird and gross (laughs) so yeah i've come around to that um why does anyone have to wear the amulet also i don't understand why they don't put it in the bag it's like so they don't lose it they're like afraid of it getting stolen which i don't super buy oh it's because they've had to like well in the books it's because they've had to just like peace out so many times that they don't want to like accidentally leave it behind if they have to flee but yeah why can't it go in the bag yeah put it in the bag because hermione's afraid she's gonna leave the bag behind at some point but she never leaves the bag behind okay well she still doesn't okay Fair enough. I just, I might not wear the thing driving me and my friends insane. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I also think it's a very hairy choice of like, let's just make our own psychic hell worse yeah. for a plot. Harry just likes a challenge. You know, yeah. he's like, he he's does. like somebody that runs with weights. Yeah. He likes creepy whispers. He's used to it. <laughs> I know. It's like, that's like his white noise machine. <laughs> the Horcrux is just ASMR to Harry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who are our performance unsung heroes? Uh, so my unsung hero is Auntie Muriel, who in the books is like a, a pretty well-known, like famous standout character in this book because she's so obnoxious and like memorably drawn as everyone's like aging, obnoxious aunt or great aunt. And although we are never actually introduced to her as Aunt Muriel in this movie, you can immediately tell at the wedding that this is an obnoxious Weasley aunt. She just, like, she really sells it. And I wrote her name down, and I can't find it, but it's really hard to say and spell. Uh, But she's yet another of the, like, you know, British standby actors and actresses. All I can find is dinosaurs I've drawn with my child. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, um... So, oh yeah, Matyalock Gibbs, M-A-T-Y-E-L-O-C-K, which, how you pronounce that, again, I, I do not know, but she Auntie is like- Auntie Matlock. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's like so fucking abrasive and like gleeful, and she's wonderful. She's also the only one wearing a good outfit at this wedding, <laughs> so. I like Mad-Eye. Okay. You get yeah, good, a... <laughs> good note. Sorry. <laughs> We were looking at unsung heroes. Uh, the guy who comes up with no, the is he yours? strategic plan in movie history and then dies five minutes in. <laughs> because his plan is so terrible. I don't think we've discussed enough. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, we cannot get through this podcast without discussing how terrible the Harry Potter evacuation plan is. <laughs> I know it's from the book and they're faith, it's a very faithful recreation Well, it can be bad in the book, too, which it is. Right. It's a terrible, stupid plan. You could make Harry Potter look like anyone, and instead you make... Everyone look like Harry Potter! (laughs) (laughs) Why? Everyone in more danger. Right. It makes makes absolutely no sense. There's a million... They're like, we can't apparate because they'll know that we've apparated to the place. They know where you are right now. 
to like apparate to somewhere they're not expecting and then fly off in crazy directions if that is inexplicably the reason <laughs> want to go. Yeah. I feel like the constraints in the Harry Potter universe are applied pretty haphazardly and only when you want to make some kind of creaking nonsense mad-eye machination important. I still like whichever Gleason. Which Gleason? Oh, are they both Domino Gleason? Yeah. Wait, Senior oh, no. and Junior? Oh, no. Oh, the, uh, the one who plays Mad-Eye. Brendan. Brendan, I think. Brendan That's Gleason. Brendan Gleason. Brendan Gleason. Really good in his little, this little opening moment. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a good turn. He gets the, yeah, I think he gets that mad eye, that mad eye spirit. Although the last moment we see him, he's on this like kind of weird recumbent room, <laughs> just like kicking back, like, like he's got like back issues and can't like. I like, totally buy that. Yeah. I Is mean, it, like supposed to be because of his leg or he like can't like hold on to and like he can't maintain his balance on a normal broom <laughs> it reminds me of like one of those like ready scooters at the grocery store like he totally has the vibe of a guy that would like very obnoxiously like kind of run into your ankles with his like <laughs> his scooter and you'd turn around to say something and then be so scared and, yeah like, in a way i would be so scared if i saw mad eye moody in real life like, oh, i yeah. would too my unsung heroes i did not look up the name of the names of these performers, but they are the two, the the three actors who play Harry, Ron, and Hermione as polyjuiced ministry employees. Because I think the like double turn of being in their own bodies, playing Ron and Hermione and Harry disguised, but also the voice acting that anyway it's just like a, a lot of layers of a character and I think they do a really nice job like the Harry guy in particular is just like very his sort of like nervous energy as kind of like telegraphed through this very like hardcore brusque exterior is subtle and works really well I think all three of them do a nice job I was going to say Hedwig was my unsung hero, but it got shot down in our planning. Much like, like Hedwig phase. did. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Hedwig dies a hero's death no. in this one. Hedwig, she doesn't, she's not, no. a, she's not like stuck in her cage and gets turned into an IED. Hedwig, she goes down fighting the Death Eaters. Hedwig is why the Death Eaters know that Harry is the real Harry. Harry, Hedwig entirely blows up their spot. Like okay. Hedwig Here's almost gets be- everybody killed. We're going to make seven identical Harry Potters, but we're only going to give one of them an owl. And if yeah, that too. Which one's got the owl? Well, good for them, I guess. Well, they all have stuffed owls in the book, which, yeah, is which like makes hilarious. more sense. Yeah, but like, wouldn't you be like, oh, hey, that owl's stuffed. Well, even if you like don't give a shit about Hedwig, even in this plan, send him with one of the other Harry Potters. Or, yeah. well, or honestly, hide him. Harry does exactly what I think he should do, which is just be like, Hedwig, like, just go. I, you can fly alone. Why You don't need to be in any of this. And then Hedwig is a dumbass <laughs> and tries to play the hero and A, gets herself killed and B, gives away the real Harry by, like, flapping around. Wow. So Hedwig is an idiot. Is actually worse in the movies. Much dumber. Hedwig dies a hero Book in... Hedwig never would have... No, back, Book Hedwig never is... Never would have fucked up this hard. Book Hedwig is smart. If Harry had just done what movie Harry does and been like, Hedwig, listen, shit's about to go down. You don't need to help me. I'm good. Just go to the burrow. Everything would have been fine. Why did they send Harry with the one dude who can't do magic? 
I because he's got the like badass souped up like motorcycle, which doesn't do anything. It's actually worse because it's so much easier to crash a motorcycle than a broom. I like that in the movie. Also, Hagrid inexplicably takes it to the road to drive <laughs> after being oh in the air, God, yeah. being and airborne it, for like it a minute. It does nothing to lose the Death Eaters who are flying. Like <laughs> if if you, if you can fly. Why would you? Like, yeah. Shockingly, they stay above traffic and just continue to fly like nothing is wrong. Meanwhile, he's, like, driving the wrong <laughs> way through the town. <laughs> Hagrid kills, like, eight muggles. Like, he does. By, like, That's causing, my... like, head-on collisions here. That's <laughs> always, like, a huge, like, sore spot for me in superhero movies, too, which I wish we could dispense with in Harry Potter, which isn't about superheroes, is, like... I am personally extremely afraid of traffic accidents, which is just important as part of this particular pet peeve. I'm very afraid of dying in a car accident. So when superheroes are just like helter-skelter causing car crashes, I'm like, these are so deadly. All of these civilians are dying. Like, drive right. And I hate that Hagrid is just like causing a bunch of car accidents. You would hate... The first Fantastic Beast film, because they do what happens in every superhero film, which is destroy New York City. Although they put it back together at the end, so that's do like slightly bring better. everybody else back to life, though. Oh, I don't know. See? I think maybe people stay dead. So many, <laughs> so many, just like random civilians die in like hideous motor vehicle accidents in these movies, and I it makes me I'm I, it's such a weird movie pet peeve, but it totally takes me out of things. Like every time Batman is in his fucking Batman mobile. And he's just Batmobile. like running down cars. I'm like, everybody in those cars is dead. That's really bad. Yeah, Hagrid causes like a bus to tip over, I think, or like multiple like like multi-car pileups. So serious manslaughter happening here. Yeah, it's, it's just reckless. <laughs> okay, well, this has been a full blast. Kyle, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I I didn't think of a sponsor for this week's episode. This week's episode is sponsored by whatever the ambulance chasing lawyer is that is cleaning up Hagrid's mess in the like motor vehicle accidents lawyer in London. (laughs) Uh, This week's episode is brought to you by the word billion. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's so mean. Ronald Billius Weasley. Or it could be brought to you by. Like, it has a definition. What kind of a middle name is that to give to it someone? It must be a family name. It could also be yeah. brought to you by Real Movie Theaters. Remember those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The movie clips that you heard are from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, directed by... David Yates. David Yates. Oh, that's right. He does the last few. And we're only halfway through this book, so we'll have another movie mini when we're done with the rest of it. Meanwhile, next time we will be reading the chapter called The Shell Cottage, or just Shell just Cottage. Just Shell Cottage. Called the Shell Cottage. The chapter called Shell Cottage. Like the Ohio State. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And so we'll talk to y'all soon. Thanks, amigos. Well, don't hang about. Snatch them. Oh, globby bottle of cheap, stinking chip oil.
But that night, another wizard stole the wand and slit the brother's throat for good measure. And so death took the first brother for his own. Ah, yes. The fine addition to my collection. <laughs>